Hey everyone, this is Connie Morgan with the Free Black Thought Podcast. Today's guest is Yahya Jata Fanusi. You may already be familiar with him as we have published him in the Journal of Free Black Thought, but we also published his thoughts on the movie Do the Right Thing as a bonus podcast back in December of last year. Yahya is a former CIA analyst and an expert on national security and financial technology. He's the creator and producer of the spy podcast series, The Jabari Lincoln Files, featuring a protagonist who is an African-American Muslim CIA officer. In this episode, we talk about his Muslim faith to include what has happened post-October 7th. Of course, he tells us about his thriller podcast, and we discuss why we should use African-American instead of Black. Because remember, there is no such thing as the Black... African-American perspective, just African-Americans with perspectives. The number you have dialed. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Yeah, yeah, thanks for joining me today. You are certainly something special. I feel like you're the type of guy who enters a room and the average IQ goes up like 10 points. There are so many directions we could take this podcast today. We could talk intelligence and national security, your former CIA, and that's very relevant right now. We could talk crypto. You have a spy thriller podcast we could we could and are going to talk about. I mean, you have like a crazy resume that is really diverse. You have a lot of different interests, yet they're all intertwined. So we'll talk about that. And and to be honest, there's one more part of your identity that wasn't even something that we were going to talk about when we knew we knew when we started the free black thought podcast that we would have you on eventually and we didn't necessarily predict or know or foresee that we would talk about your your um, religious background and that you're a a black muslim man in america and now that seems to be very relevant as well and something interesting and a different lens that you bring especially compared to a lot of the guests that we've had on the show recently in terms of what's going on in israel geopolitics politics, all that kind of stuff. So there's just so much good stuff and we're going to try to touch on all of it. But as we always do with our first time guests, please just tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? How were you raised? And how did your path kind of lead you to where you're at here today? Well, thank you. Um, thank you, Connie. Really appreciate the time. I've been a fan of Black uh, Free Black Thought since you all started, just as a as a journal, uh, email, Twitter, and, and now seeing the podcast. Really happy to, to contribute and, and have this conversation. Well, I guess to, to get into my origin story, uh, maybe I would break it down into a few phases. Uh, but in terms of my roots, um, you know, I'm born, I was born and raised in California. My my mother is is African American, mostly raised in in the Los Angeles area. My father is from Sierra Leone, and he came to the United States in the late '60s for for college. So he was uh, coming out of this was sort of when Sierra Leone was newly independent. He came, landed in in on the West Coast, um, went to the University of Oregon in the late '60s. This was the time when the Panthers were, but uh, but they then met I think in UCLA. And, uh, and I was born and raised there. I have a sister who's about uh, eight years or so younger than me. And, um, and so I grew up in the Los Angeles area with a few different phases. I mean, actually, my, my early, uh, early days, I was actually, we were in Oakland in the Bay Area. And then, uh, then we went to Nigeria for a year. So when I was in second grade, my dad had to go back to, you know, he'd finished his degree. He went back to, to teach. And we were, well, he went to Nigeria. He couldn't go back to Sierra Leone, so he went to Nigeria. So we were in northern Nigeria for a year, my mom, my dad, and myself. My mom then got pregnant with my sister, so we came back to L.A., moved with my grandmother, while my dad sort of stayed back for another year. Uh, So I was exposed Mm -hmm. to Africa 
yeah. uh, in a very real way for that year, going to second grade, came back to Southern California. And um, yeah, that was, you know, the, my that first phase of my life was just probably your typical, you know, young, young guy. Um, and we lived briefly in South Central. Then we moved out to the valley, moved out to the San Fernando Valley. And that's probably where I'd, I'd say my, my real roots are, because that's where I, mm -hmm. I really came of age. And this was in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, as a teenager, I was really influenced by by the, the music, hip hop culture of, uh, uh, of the time. You know, Do the Right Thing was a was a, was a, a movie that sort of shaped my early life, as, as you can imagine. And so that that was that was my experience. So that was, I think, the first phase. And then um, and then I went to college. Uh, so I went to college. I went to UC Berkeley. So, you know, upstate in California, up in the Bay Area. And then, wow, I think that was where all these different phases uh, or these parts of my life came together because I studied economics. I was really interested in development, international development, Africa. I traveled to the Caribbean while I was there for some for some school school work. I did some research in Zimbabwe when I was, uh, you know, in in my college years. So just very very global. But then the thing, probably the thing that defined my college experience was towards the end of it. Um, I actually sort of had a religious transformation. Um, I probably should have mentioned, you know, in terms of my religious background around you know, my dad was not very religious. My my mother was, you know, came from a Christian family and was Christian. Um, but I would say my my upbringing was sort of, you know, you know, going to church sometimes, you know, Christmas, et cetera. So not a strong, strong um, background, but, you know, mm -hmm. nominally Christian, I guess I, I would say. And so, um, yeah, it's a longer story how I kind of, you know, um, found my way to, to Islam. But that was, I mean, that was huge, right? Because that sort of, I think, changed my focus. A lot of the political and cultural focus that I had uh, sort of uh, shifted. And I started thinking more about universal principles and like universal ideals, as opposed to the very sort of politicized, you know, black power, black nationalist mentality that I had in my teenage years. And then to bring it to today, I guess the next phase was mm -hmm. becoming an adult, um, going to grad school, um, getting married. You know, my wife and I've been married for 23 years, thankfully. She's, uh, you know, she's, she's still with me <laughs> and um, she's, she, she hasn't gotten rid of me. And um, and then so, yeah, my professional life, I, I went from getting a master's in international affairs to um, teaching for a few years uh, in Washington, D.C., and eventually joining the CIA. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so I joined the CIA back in 2005 and I worked there for seven years. I was an economic analyst and a counterterrorism analyst. And uh, I left government over a decade ago. But that was, you know, that was just a seminal part of my life. I mean. Um, I'm currently, I still am in the sort of national security space, not in government, but um, I sort of follow a lot of national security issues. And uh, even though I'm outside of government now, so that's kind of always on my antenna. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, a, that's a, a bit of a breakdown. Yeah, that was a really good uh, roundup there. What did your family think mm. when you converted to Islam, especially your Christian mom? Yeah. Was she, did she have hard feelings about that? So not so i had you know a lot of converts will have this this you know hard sort of family breakup story um i didn't experience that i i experienced uh my mother you know i don't want to get you know give too much of her her business but but, yeah. but i mean i would say that you know, she was very open open uh to me and and very respectful and accepting um and 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 my christian family i mean i was closest more close to my mom's family than my dad's because my dad most of the family was not here in, in wasn't in california 
So I would only say there were some maybe awkward things. I mean, you know, becoming Muslim is a big sort of shift in your lifestyle in many ways. Um, Not a huge shift, but I mean, just some some of the the sort of daily things, you know, not eating pork, et cetera. And so there might have been some awkward things because this was right when I was graduating. And so, you know, I remember, I remember I had a, one of my cousins, one of my, my uh, close cousins, he was visiting me right after I had converted. And I remember I told him, this is a younger cousin. And I told him, you know, I was like, Hey, you know, you know, I, I converted to Islam. And, um, and, you know, he was like, Oh, what you, no, no, no. And, you know, I think I showed him like the Quran and he was like, no, no, that's not the Bible. You know? So there was a little bit of, you know, there's a little bit of awkwardness, but thankfully, you know, I graduated, my, my family came up to graduation and they saw my life. Um, one of the biggest examples I think of how I dealt with that was that, you know, when I got married, I actually, um, you know, my, my wife who is Muslim. So my wife is also African-American, also Muslim. Uh, but not a convert. She she was born and raised Muslim, and her parents, African American, they came through. They actually came to Islam through the Nation of Islam, and then 1975, when Elijah Muhammad passed, and then his son sort of be, uh, became the leader of that community and 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 took the community to universal Islam. They were a part of that. So she was in you know Boston, the Boston area, very dynamic. The African American community, Muslim community, was very strong. And so when my when I we got married in Boston, my family, my Christian family came to the wedding and they met the family and 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 it wasn't antagonistic. I think they saw that we were open, that they were open, the family was open, and I think there was a bit of a bridge. So fortunately, um, you know, outside of a few awkward issues, it hasn't been a, a, a problem. Yeah, that's and that's great to hear. You know, you don't want to see families get torn apart for for really any reason. So it's encouraging to hear that it wasn't too big of a struggle for you. And mm. by the time we published this episode, this episode of the podcast, mm. um, we will have long ago published your piece for the Journal of Free Black Thought titled, Do Not Let the Middle East Militancy Hijack Our Religion. Mm. I encourage everyone to check that out if you haven't already. But for those who haven't read it yet, I'll just say that that piece you wrote is not actually so much about your personal experience as a black Muslim or um, any sort of advice as to what should, what should Israel do and what should Palestine do. Yeah. It's really kind of a warning call against radicalization. And it, you're sort of talking more towards your Muslim brethren, but it's actually applicable to anybody on any side. So because the, that piece that you wrote, which is wonderful, doesn't really get into your personal experience, mm. I want to ask you, how has your experience as a, as a Black American Muslim man changed or not changed pre or post October 7th? Like, has there been any awkwardness after the fact that people expected you to come out strong with, you know, big opinions and writing articles? What has that been like? Yeah, no, I wouldn't say so. It, it hasn't changed for me. I'm, my experience hasn't changed in 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 any way. I think you know, um, you know these these things. You know, this is a big geopolitical thing happening right now. But I mean, you know, I, at my age, you know, I've seen a lot of things happen. So it, it hasn't. I mean, maybe for someone else who might be new to the religion, and but but not so much. The the piece was really more an observation of me seeing, I guess, things happening around me that through my vantage point are concerning that that don't really get voiced or aren't getting voiced in the in the social climate within the Muslim community and I knew that I had some thoughts that um, maybe maybe some people wouldn't agree with but I feel like I felt like I had to say them and and I'll actually say this might actually help for listeners to to, to contextualize this piece because even though it's this is not a perfect analogy but 
this is somewhat, I, I was feeling something similar to what I felt in the summer of 2020 with George mm-hmm. Floyd, the death, the killing yep. of George. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask about that, actually, yeah, the parallels. Yep. Such, I'm glad you're going Yeah, there. because what it is, you know, and again, it, it, not perfect, you know, you know, analogies, very different situations. One is an ongoing war that is still happening, right? But in the sense of with George F- Floyd, after, you know, you, I saw a lot of things happening after, after you know George Floyd and and the riots, which was that there was this one dimensional narrative that was just permeating the culture, and I found troubling because in it was like a sense of victimhood and victimization that just seemed to permeate and infect everything, and that was that was my take. And there were certain things that happened that that I that I just said, oh no, this this is not good. I mean, I understand why there's a lot of emotion around what happened. But how it's manifesting in terms of how people are reacting, this is not good for our culture. This is not good for the African-American culture. It's not good for American culture. And so, you know, I I wrote this piece for 1776 Unites called Black is the New Idol um, in like late summer 2020. And so so how is this similar? Well, there, you know, what what has what has concerned me is that. With this very volatile situation, you know, the Hamas attacks on Israel on October 7th, which was, you know, very, I mean, horrific attacks. And then, of course, it just sort of, you know, became the big thing on social media. Everyone had an opinion about it and just becomes this controversial thing, this backlash back and forth. And then, of course, with, you know, the, the response from Israel, the humanitarian issues and disasters and deaths of civilian casualties, all of that. So, so it's very much in the public consciousness. But my concern is that well, there's sort of two things. It's that one, I also see, because this is such a volatile issue, like with George Floyd, within the Muslim community, there's like this one dimensional political and activist narrative that seems to be permeating um, the culture. And that, that narrative, which again, is sort of driven by like, so looking at something again, I'm not, I'm not in, uh, you know, is Israel Palestinian conflict expert, right? That's not my thing. It's not what I did mm-hmm. when I was in government, even though I dealt with, with terrorism and national security, but I, you know, I never really dealt with that issue. It's not my issue per se to be an expert on, but what, what mm-hmm. I do feel like I understand because as a counterterrorism analyst, you know, I spent a lot of time looking at movements around the world, jihadist, the the jihadist movement and its arguments, how it um, radicalizes, how it would, how different organizations like Al Qaeda would recruit and the the narratives that back in the, back in the day, this is during the Osama, when Osama bin Laden was alive, the narratives that, that he would use, that Al Qaeda used, um, the London bombers of January, of July 7th, et cetera. And that, a lot of the argumentation that they had, that they had, I see reflected in some of the argumentation around this conflict, and that's why it's a concern. So it's mm-hmm. not that I'm, you know, trying to, you know, counter Palestinian rights or or anything like that. It's just this concern that hey, there's there there all there's this undercurrent of radicalization that is, um, I think, exploiting the conflict, and I wanted to sort of flag that because I think if people don't understand that. It could have bad consequences for the Muslim community in America, which is my my main concern. Mm-hmm. Do you, you know there, there's there is a you know obviously a, a, a decent and growing population of American Muslims, but for a lot of people, mm. 
um, they may not have interacted. They might not have a single Muslim friend. You know, they probably they may not have um, you know any mosques in their neighborhoods or anything like that. Mm. So when people are meeting you and they're not super familiar with your faith and you know, just like Christianity, right? There's many different sects. Yeah. There's many different you know theologies with under that Christian umbrella. Do you find that people tend to lump you into this sort of? They sort of assume like, oh, there's prob you're probably you maybe flirt with these radical ideas or, or do they, are people able to completely separate you? They understand like you're an American, these folks are halfway across the world, you know, just in your personal conversations or are people just scared to, <laughs> I can see people just being kind of like, nice to meet you. What, what am I, how am I supposed to talk to you? I don't know how to handle this. Uh, I don't think I have, um, you know, I, I, nothing stands out as being, you know, I, I, I guess in, you know, in my life, right. Cause again, I've been, I've been Muslim for so, for so long, um, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I deal with anything outright, you know, like apprehension or anything. I'm sure though, just being people and human beings. Yeah. People have certain, they probably have certain prejudgments, prejudices, maybe, um, certain, you know, um, you know, ideas about Islam from whatever, what stuff they've read, stuff they see. Um, and I'm sure that may impact them, but it hasn't for the most part impacted me in a way where I felt like, you know, oh man, my, my, my life is so tough or hard or anything like that. Plus, I mean, mm -hmm. again, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm me, I'm an American, right? I'm like, like me becoming Muslim didn't change my, you know, my ability to interact with people and my personality, et cetera. So, so um, I, I don't think that people, you know, sort of, yeah, I don't think it has been, been a huge impediment for, for me. Um, I think the thing that I would say though, is that, um, you know, in, what 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 probably people don't understand is that because you're right people don't interact with a lot of muslims so i think a lot of people have this idea that islam is such a is a foreign thing and i think maybe that impacts me like people see certain things and they're like yeah this muslim thing is such a, a foreign thing when when you're in the muslim community in america the muslim american community the way I see it, Islam is, an, is is very American. And in fact, you know, I credit my mm -hmm. wife in a lot of ways because my wife, um, she's a historian. She, she, she studied, her specialty is actually the history of Islam in America. Like that's, that's her thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know a lot about the roots, like the, this, the, the interesting way that, that Islam has played a part in the United States for, for, for a long time. So I haven't had that issue. Maybe the one, the one thing that does come up I, that I should mention is, so here's the thing, because, you know, I mentioned, I said, oh, you know, my wife came, her family came through the Nation of Islam. So here's the biggest thing that I think most people don't don't get as a as an African-American Muslim. And just a little a little asterisk, because some people might say, why does he always say that? So I prefer that. I know this might go into your 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 speed round of questions. I'm going to I'm oh, going to yeah, answer black or African-American. Yeah, I use African-American. That's my purpose. And I know sometimes I have this uh, little debate with Charles Love about uh, black or African, because I'm like <laughs> African-American for me. And I know I'm on free black thought. So it's not like I'm, so I'm not, I'm, it's not that I don't use black or I can't say black or anything like that. But to mm -hmm. me, African-American is, um, I think a problem with our language about race is the fact that we focus on color. And so how do we get out mm -hmm. of a color-based mindset if we're always saying, oh, that black person, that white person. Right. African-American, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. even Caucasian, right, which is not people don't say, but is is it's it's hard to use it as an as an epithet, I think. Like you think about it, say mm -hmm. that that white man, that Caucasian man, mm -hmm. you know, that black man, <laughs> yeah. that African-American man, you know, it, it rolls off yeah. differently. Right. And so getting away from mm -hmm. color, even though African-American is not the it's it, it doesn't it's not the best 
you know, you know, someone say it's not the best. It doesn't really represent. There's no way you can categorize race that's going to be perfect. It's all going to be imperfect. So for mm-hmm. me, I really prefer yeah. African American. But a lot of people think if you're an African American and Muslim or a black, if you're black and Muslim, they think, oh, nation of Islam. And I think a lot of us African American mm-hmm. Muslims get that. What what people don't realize is that if I can just give like a quick little history lesson, because this actually relates to my yeah. my identity. So the the so what most people like everyone thinks about the nation from like how it got a lot of focus in the 80s and 90s you know during I mean, because of Louis Farrakhan and so what what really what I was surprised when I sort of became Muslim was that history of the nation of Islam which it had different segments right you have the early days 1930 then you have sort of when when it grew because of Malcolm Malcolm X in the 50s and 60s and then you know, Malcolm X was killed and then you have this era that went to 1975 Elijah Muhammad died in 75 and his son Wallace Muhammad took you know became the leader most people don't realize that most of those people that were in the nation with that very sort of racial black superiority you know narrative and ideology left that or it's not as they left that and then they sort of they embraced because uh, Wallace Muhammad WD Muhammad brought a universal understanding of Islam to that population and it wasn't until later that Farrakhan a couple years later said you know what no 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 I'm I, I'm not with this thing you're, you're saying the, the white man's not the devil like I, nah, you know and he restarted the nation of Islam under that mm-hmm. that old framework and mindsets but most of the followers went into mainstream and universal Islam Islam proper as I would say and the funny okay. thing is most people saw, thought the nation of Islam was the bigger thing when really it was that bigger the bigger population was the African-American Muslims who identified with universal Islam what's the feeling amongst the mm-hmm. African-American Muslim community about this like BLM's like comparison and comparison to the Palestinian struggle are, are people appreciating those comparisons are they rejecting them or is it kind of split What's the tone there? I don't know yet. We'll see how people respond to the the article, which <laughs> to your article, which I, which, which I know is going to be controversial because it, you know it's the same thing with the summer of 2020, which is there is like this narrative. I I, I feel like even within the African American community. So here's the funny thing, which is it's funny watching the activism on this issue, you know, sort of the the, the Palestinian issue, which often tries to draw comparisons to the African-American experience. Exactly. Because you'll yeah. hear that. You hear that in speeches like, and the black people did, you know, blah, blah, and apartheid, et cetera, like drawing these comparisons. And I often find that those comparisons are not, they're not apt. They're not, you know, you, you can maybe use, you can point to obviously oppression. And so there may be some, you know, some some commonalities there. But I almost feel like that's actually undermining what the African-American experience was, even the South African experience, because mm-hmm. you, you'd have to ask, where's the transformational leadership, that universal leadership that's bringing, that's, that's bringing, you know, the people on all sides to an understanding of their brotherhood and, and, you know, what's the framework that's allowing these people in this conflict to work together, to grow together? Like, what is it? Or is it just activism on grievances? Because that's not Mm -hmm. going to get what the African-American, that's not how the African-Americans sort of achieve, right? There was a whole framework within our country. So I'm again, very different issues, but I, I would say that, that whether that, whether the African-American Muslim or just the other, just just Muslim, regular Muslims in America, 
you know, or not regular, but, you know, non-black Muslims in America, um, the the image of foreign policy is just very one dimensional. I mean, so 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 people, I think, have this sense, I would say, of a like colonial post-colonial mindset when it comes to international affairs. That That's what I would say. I would mm-hmm. say that the foreign policy, I don't want to say IQ, but the foreign policy understanding of the Muslim American community needs some maturation. It needs to mature. A lot of what I would hear, and again, this is just, you know, talking to just regular folks, friends, you know, uh, colleagues, um, you know, it's almost as if, you know, we were in 1964, you know, in the middle of the, the independence movements and thinking about, you know, Egyptian, you know, the British in Egypt and, you know, and, and uh, uh, the Belgium and, and the Congo and like that mindset, which again, my father came over post-independence, right? So, so th- that, mm-hmm. that mindset seems to animate how people see foreign policy, America in general, for, for many people, especially in this time, when there's a conflict, when it's, you know, Israel, I mean, all of, all, I've, you know, I think that's the challenge that the, the perception of foreign policy is just so one-dimensional. And obviously you can, like you said, you were in the CIA, you left, now you're still kind of doing a lot of this uh, thinking about foreign policy and all that sort of thing. Why did you leave the CIA? It's so sexy, right? To say that you're in the CIA. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you step away? I, you know, are the three letter agencies really a mm. big bureaucratic mess? Like many on the right, like to claim or yeah. what were you just ready for something new? No. Um, so, so here's, this is a, maybe, I don't know, not, it's not a spoiler, but it's something I haven't talked. I've talked about a, this a little bit cause I, I have to be honest. So it's so funny because my time at the CIA was su- surprise, surprise, actually like highlight of my professional experience. I had, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. I mean, they're, they're th- I mean, you know, government jobs, bureaucracies. I mean, all right, it's not all, it's not, yeah. you know, there, there are issues there. Uh, but in terms of the work, doing something meaningful, um, you, you know, as a counterterrorism analyst, feeling like I was doing something, again, meaningful, helping my country, um, being a, a, a resource with the proper, hopefully, understanding of Islam to, to, to work on these issues that maybe some people didn't have. They didn't have that cultural familiarity with Islam, with the religion, with the references, with the scripture. You know, all of that was, was, was great um, for the most part. I left I honestly because I had I did have some problems. I did have some problems mm-hmm. towards the end of my career where um and I'll and I'll put it like this because you know someone told me no they didn't tell me but I heard someone say about marriage and I'm gonna, I'm going to liken leaving the CIA is like getting a divorce. And I remember someone said not about the CIA but about divorce that once you have a divorce and you're able to talk about the separation and focus on yourself that's when you've gotten past a bad, <laughs> a bad divorce and not mm-hmm. about the other person. So I'm going to talk about myself um, very honestly, hopefully. Um, so I actually had a situation in, like, I would say, a regular administrative review where I had um, or my sort of security clearance re- review that everyone goes through every few years yeah. where yep. I, um, I had made a mistake, an administrative mistake, and it wasn't at least I didn't think at the time anything big or controversial it wasn't anything that would you know be on the New York Times or anything like that, right? So don't don't no one's imagination think, oh my god, this guy he stole secret, he leaked you know to the Russians, nothing like that. Uh, but but it, it, but but some things you know, I mean, these processes pro- there's a lot of scrutiny in general, 
and I, yes. you know, I made a mistake on something and then um, found myself in a situation where I was under a lot of scrutiny just in general. And, you know, some would look at my situation and point to, well, was there religious sort of a religious angle or issue? Um, you know, there may have been, but I'm not uh, I've never. I didn't really go that route. I just kind of stuck to my guns and I was like, look, hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm not in the wrong here. And, I, you know, I, I defend myself up to the utmost. And I'm not going to, you know, uh, say that I did anything wrong, essentially, I think through much of that time. And the clearance, the security clearance process was went really bad, went went really wrong uh, to the point where um, it just it just, you know, I wasn't able to stay. I did not stay. And so mm. I actually left at the height of my time there, really generally enjoying the work, um, but having some difficulties that when I talk about it, I don't talk about it, you know, to tell people, oh, you know what? Oh, man, if you're a Muslim, you know, don't go go here. When I if I have a personal conversation with someone, I'll say, you know, great place to work enjoy, really enjoyed it. Um, I recommend people do it. Here's what you need to know about just the logistical issues and, you know, things that you have to deal with working in that type of environment. It's not, you know, it's not all, uh, you know, cake and sunshine. Um, but, um, but I left, but even though I left a decade ago, I've been out since 2012, um, I have still been involved in the national security space in general. Mm -hmm. I would actually think that kind of to your point about being able to educate people mm. about, Muslim culture and scripture and all that sort of thing that they would actually like the CIA would actually seek out intelligent, patriotic Muslim Americans for these, you know, solving these problems in the, in the Middle East specifically, but in other places, yeah, Northern Africa, you know, wherever, wherever it's necessary. Was that the case or was not so much, or was it mostly working with people locally kind of contractor type of stuff? So, so I was an analyst. So, so to be clear, so you know, mainly at headquarters for most of my time, um, I was assigned actually to the National Counterterrorism Center, which is like a multi-agency, separate agency with different agent with different um, analysts uh, from different agencies uh, together. Um, but yeah, what most people probably don't know is there are lots of Muslims within the CIA, within the intelligence community. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't rare per se, right? Obviously, like not, not a majority or anything like that. But um, right. but I remember the first time during my interview, and this is probably what, what um, you know, just opened my eyes. So I remember when I did my interview, and this is this is a few years after 9-11, right? And it's, yeah, because I think my interview was like in 2003, late 2003, maybe. And so I go to headquarters. Back then they had the interview actually in headquarters. So I'm, you know, driving up first time, going there, going in, walking over the seal, the CIA seal, like all yeah. of that, right? And um, I had a couple of interviews with two different offices. And one office, and I think this guy was great because I did, I went one office and I went like up to their office in some room and it was like very bland. You didn't really see anything. The other guy who interviewed me, he took me down to the cafeteria and he was like, hey, let's get some coffee. Let's talk. And he's giving me like mm -hmm. a, just an interview, but over coffee and lunch or whatever. And I'm sitting in the cafeteria. And then I think we're walking back to like, you know, walking to another room or whatever. And I actually see a woman wearing a headscarf, a Muslim woman walking through the halls. And I'm in the CIA. I'm like, wait, where am I? Is this really the CIA? And this is like a few years after 9-11. So that's just an example. And even though, you know, I'll point to maybe some, you know, some slight, some problems I had, um, there, there, there are Muslims there working, working in the counterterrorism fight and in other areas, just because you're Muslim, it doesn't mean you have to work counterterrorism. Um, but the thing I would say, because I don't want to leave the agency off the hook, because in the intel community, because because you were saying like you would think they'd be recruiting more left and right. Yes. But um, 
I did find this one thing where, but there's, there's that because religion is such a, like, just for, for America in general, right? It's a sensitive topic and in government, especially people don't talk about Mm -hmm. religion. So I, I would find that sometimes people would be bashful. Like people, you would think people would say, Hey, you know, can I get your thought on this? Because it was it yeah. was wasn't really that as much. It was more like you have to kind of put yourself in the position to be like, you know what, mm-hmm. I kind of know something about this, and and then maybe people would listen. But people aren't, you know, there's off the, people kind of want to be experts sometimes, and they're a little bashful about reaching yeah. out. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, you mentioned in your your podcast, which we'll talk about here in a moment, that the bureau and the CIA are they have a rivalry, right? Mm. And I mean, from a common sense perspective, I think everyone goes, yeah, that that would make sense. But can you actually lay out the differences for people who may not know? Like they just know FBI, CIA, cool, (laughs) cool three-letter agencies with people doing stuff to protect us. What's really the difference and why is there this rivalry and how do you get in each other's way? So F, you know, I guess there's different dimensions because so the thing is probably there's probably every agency has some rivalry with like other agencies. That's mm-hmm. the thing about government. Unfortunately, it's like when you're in an agency, it's like, you're the agency, you're, it's your agency. And everyone just, you know, they, they do things incorrectly or they get things wrong in CIA. Mm-hmm. Even, so I was an analyst, which, which means, which meant I was writing papers, doing analysis, briefing people, but you also are always interacting because when you write something, uh, depending on the topic, right? You are coordinating, that's the term we use, with other agencies. So you'll write something and then you'll send it over to the FBI and their experts who are experts on that issue would comment, et cetera, et cetera. So we're always interacting. And you would find that at the CIA, they're always like, oh yeah, that agency, DOD, Department of Defense, oh, you know, they don't really know X, Y, Z. So you have mm-hmm. this sort of tribalism, unfortunately, within our government. So that's like, that. you have that in general. Um, for For analysts, the difference with FBI and CIA, I mean, there's the functional different difference, which is FBI is a law enforcement agency, which is um, arrest, doing cases, investigating here in the United States. That is their mission, right? Defending the U.S. and, mm-hmm. and, the, and, the, and their law enforcement. CIA is, is a different animal. CIA, you know, is doing intelligence collection on foreign targets, not on the United States, on foreign targets, foreign groups, et cetera, not to arrest people. CIA, people don't have badges that are arresting people, right? So we're so CIA is, is collecting and providing, doing that collection, then providing that analysis. The analysts at CIA, I think, it's like, it was a very high level of analysis because CIA analysis was very, you know, for decades was like the cream of the crop. Like the CIA was the main intel agency doing analysis. The FBI has always had more of an agent culture. Agents have guns and badges. And then back in the day, analysts at FBI we're kind of like secretaries, you know, you've the, 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 you know, there's a great movie, you know, I'm really into movies. <laughs> there's really a great movie, you know, back in like, it's, it's maybe 20 years old, but there was a, the get smart movie that came out, you know, uh-huh. like 15, uh-huh. 20 years ago. And they, I actually think that, that movie was, it was good because it actually played on that where like the FBI was like, it was this big analyst uh, agent. And he was like, treated the FBI analysts like really poorly. And so that's mm-hmm. a different culture, right? There's more an agent culture where at CIA amongst the analysts, we have more of an analyst culture. Um, so you're just going to have these differences and then, you know, different agencies are just going to, just going to beef, uh, you know? Yeah, yeah. I um I actually have a much less 
fancy intel background. I was a military intelligence officer in the army. And so, uh, you know, they used to talk about the intelligence community, you know, and that included different agencies and different groups and death. Absolutely. A hundred percent people had prejudices against certain organizations, or you don't want to go CIA. You want to go FBI. You don't want to go FBI. You want to go CIA. If you get a job, Mm -hmm. you know, after you get out. And, um, so it's just funny to hear that that's totally a hundred percent universal. And everyone has that, uh, has develops, some sort of yeah. feeling about different agencies. Yeah. Uh, but you actually mentioned, going back a little bit, so uh, you mentioned 1776 Unites and these couple of pieces that you wrote for them. What is, what are you doing for, what's your connection to 1776 Unites and mm. how did you fall into that post-CIA? So 1776, um, you know, in 2020, if I, if I remember correctly, um, I wrote this piece going back to Summer of George Floyd and I wrote this piece, and it's so funny. This gets into like the cultural angle more, right? Was because, you know, I remember. So Beyonce. Let's talk about Beyonce if we can. I don't know if, you've, okay. if Beyonce has been mentioned on your podcast. Uh, <laughs> so back in 2020, Beyonce came out with this video, this program uh, special on Disney that was called "Black Is King," um, mm-hmm. and and I I. That seems like in 2023, it probably doesn't seem like a big deal. But when it happened, I was like, wait a second, that that's that's not cool. That like black is king. Like, what are we like? First of all, and it's on Disney. Like, so I remember like in the yeah. 90s, you go, Black is King, right? Like, I mean, you could have you had hip hop songs, it was probably called Black is King. Mm-hmm. I, I used to write lyrics and that would be like Black is King, right? Why how is Disney doing this like to me, which seemed like black I- idolatry really in, in my yeah. mind. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wrote. I wrote that black is the new idol. So now we're like, mm-hmm. here we are as a people have come through all these struggles and it was really our scripture and our religion. It was, you know, if you think of all the movements, right, especially the, the, the Christian faith, most of our leaders came through that experience with a strong scriptural base to fight the fight. It wasn't mm-hmm. about, oh, we're black. And because we're black, you know, that was that was not what really, you know, that, you know, shaped much of our struggle. And so for us to be mm-hmm. at this stage where we're like glamorizing blackness, to me, it just seemed odd. And so I wrote this piece and I was really looking for a place to to pitch and to publish it. And I think I just reached out to 1776. I think they had just started in 2020. And I, I wrote that piece. And then I think several months or a, a year later, I wrote a piece about patriotism, African-American patriotism. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so I've been a 1776 Unite scholar and have contributed to the uh, Red, White, and Black um, series, edited book that they've had, you know, a bunch of, you know, other great folks who've, who've contributed to that. I was able to um, have my piece in that book. And what does it mean actually to be like a scholar for them? Hmm. Like you're doing, you just, you're, you're editing, you're writing, you're doing research, you're like, what does that title mean? Hmm. That might, I, I'm not sure how much. I mean, that may be more for a question for the Woodson Center, which has sort of developed. It, yeah. You know, because I think the way the way I saw it was was more like, you know, they wanted to have in a sort of an association of people who they they either see as thought leaders or people really doing interesting things to draw on. To because when 1776 started, United United started, it was really a reaction to the 1619 project, and 1619, mm-hmm. you know, has its scholars and uh, you know right. has its vo- voices. <laughs> air quotes there. I did air quotes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, scholars. Yeah, right. It had its uh, influence. It had its, you know its thought 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 leaders and writers and journalists. So I uh, I think 
uh, they wanted to assemble people that could you know, have a very different view and narrative, one that was less based on victim, victimization, victimhood, one that saw America as a place of that we should embrace and see the sort of multidimensional history of America, not it being this, you know, just just slavery, you know, it's, it's just, you know, and, and it's mm-hmm. just, you know, almost this defeatist attitude. So I think it's an assembly of, of people that, um, that, that uh, they want to draw on. And I was real happy to, to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. And those those two pieces that you wrote are also wonderful. And I think all these things, all the components of Yaya come together in your 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 podcast, mm. which is the Jabari Lincoln Files. This is your spy thriller podcast. I've listened to a couple episodes. Mm. I haven't listened to them all, okay. so I want to be honest yeah. about that. But it is so well produced. Obviously, people can tell listening to this that you have a great voice. So that's like Thank you know, you. it's you're the perfect person to to read it and perform it because I know it's it's a performance. It's not just reading it. And honestly, the podcasts that I listen to are really like this one that I'm on right mm. now. I tend to just listen to people talking, long form, kind of boring. I don't listen to entertainment mm. podcasts. I never had listened to an entertainment mm. podcast till I had to prep for this oh. one. And so I listen to yours. My husband does all that stuff, so mm. he would be. I told him to listen to it. And I was like, you tell me what you think. So mm. I don't want to. Some people who listen to my take on this might be like, well, that's how a lot of them are. But I thought it was very well produced. I thought it was so fun that it's kind of from the, like, I'm the analyst, you know, and I'm getting these these data drops every week. It's, you know, that's when the episode mm. publishes. And uh, I thought that was really fun. It actually brought me back to, like, being a kid and playing Carmen Sandiego <laughs> <laughs> on the computer. I was like, oh, it's like Carmen Sandiego, but for adults. Mm. And I asked my husband, I was like, do they tend to, is this kind of a normal format to kind of put you like you're in the player seat? And he was like, nah, mm. not so much kind yeah. of not really, you know? Yeah. So I know it is after talking to him, it is a little bit more unique. And I thought that was a lot of, a lot of fun. Mm. Um, I want to read the the synopsis here for, okay. for our audience. It's a fictional audio thriller. Jabari Lincoln is the CIA's top financial intelligence analyst. He also happens to be an African-American Muslim. Born and raised in Detroit, he rises to the top of the intelligence game when he is unfairly suspected of being disloyal to the United States. Under a cloud of suspicion, he uncovers a mysterious cyberplot emerging in the Nigerian banking system. As a new financial weapon threatens the United States and the world, he travels across three continents to figure out who is pulling the strings as hidden forces try to eliminate him. Mm. And yeah, I got to ask. Is this just your life story? Did you secretly save the world? Is that how this is going to end? No, no. I always, the way I say it is it is a truly fictional podcast, truly fictional story with some very real elements. So there's some realistic stuff in there, hopefully, you know, ripped, not from, you know, not, you know, there's some things from, from, from my experience or things I've observed that I've, I've sort of, you know, sprinkled in there uh, to make it realistic. But it's, yeah, no, it's a fictional story. I totally, you know, the plot and everything. (laughs) Although the funny thing is, I mean, I can't really, we won't be able to talk too much about this because of spoilers, but there are, there are some things that interestingly I wrote in the, the, the thing, the story and then later happened. And Mm. and maybe I'll I'll share one, which is not a big spoiler, especially if you, if you finish uh, it's in episode Two, and I don't think this is a, a, a big spoiler, but so there's this one scene where in the story, Jabari Lincoln goes to Nigeria and he briefs the Central Bank of Nigeria. That's a part of it's, it's a main part of what happens in, in the early part of the, the story. 
And so, and you know, some stuff happens. I mean, it's like a really interesting thing, but, but him going to Nigeria to brief the central bank of Nigeria, like that, that's a main part of the story. And so I wrote this, like, in, you know, I started writing it in 2019. And, and so, but lo and behold, at one point, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, and this was like 2021 or 2022, I forget. Um, I got an email asking me to present the, I mean, do a no. briefing at the, for the Central Bank of Nigeria, literally. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, oh what is, wait a second, what's going on here? Um, so that that actually happened. Now I ended up doing it remotely. But um, but yeah, stuff like that happened in, in, in the story. So what's the creative like writing process for this. I'm curious because I've never, I'm a creative person. I have yeah. a novel I'd like to write. I have a, a romantic comedy. I'm not even a romantic comedy fan, but mm-hmm. one day this idea for a romantic comedy came to my head and I was like, this isn't a book. This is a movie. Like mm-hmm. if I write this down, it has to be a script, but I've never thought about doing kind of an entertainment style podcast. Did you know that when you were thinking of the story, that's what it was going to be? How did you know that? Or did were you thinking a novel first or yeah? how did that process even work? So there's a lot of back background because um, I had, I had toyed with this format of a story, which is, is narrated in a podcast with sound design, like music, you know, in it. So that, that's the, that's the format of this podcast. So I actually had toyed with that a few years earlier. I created um, a podcast. It's actually still up. It's called uh, rhythm of wisdom. And that podcast is somewhat similar, but it's true. So it's actually me. It's, Mm -hmm. I, I started writing these little vignettes about my life reflections, and I put it in a very dramatic, dramatic tone little stories and um, I produced that you know a few years ago that was like in 2015 and so those stories are already there what had changed where this podcast the Jabari Lincoln Files came from was I was actually planning to write a memoir and I sort of chuckle now because I'm like you know it's it's a bit narcissistic you know everyone thinks they've got a memoir you know <laughs> so that was me I, yeah. I admit like a few years so I've been okay yeah I mean I was like oh I've oh people would love to read this story you know and so I knew so I, I had this idea of, of writing a memoir and I had a book proposal and what I was trying to do was I was trying to get a literary agent you know so I had a book proposal and I and, and I actually pitched it and I had, um, I actually got a few rejections. I got about two or three rejections early on. You know, the literary agent said, oh, you know, great, oh, it's a great story, but yeah, I can't take this on. I don't think, yeah, I'm going to pass, um, which I think is just, just natural, right? You're trying to, you know, you're shopping stuff around. Um, and I had this one experience where I went to this podcast conference um, in Philly that Audible had had um, put together. And they had a pitch competition where they wanted people to pitch stories that could be on Audible. And I did mm. it. And I actually did, I think, pretty well. Audible wanted to talk to me. They were like, oh, my goodness, we want to. I felt like, you know, oh, I'm going to get signed. Like, they were like, oh, we want to talk to you. We yeah. want to produce something. Then stuff happened. They had changed their format. And it just, like, fell through. Like, they were no longer. They ghosted mm. me because <laughs> they had had mm-hmm. some programming change around, you know, at the time. So I was disappointed. Yeah. And and at that point, I was like, you know what? I don't know where it came from. I just said, you know what? Forget this. Actually doing a memoir, that's going to get personal, my personal. Like, you know what? Why don't I just create something totally new and have fun with it? So I just decided mm-hmm. to create a, a story, to create a character, make it a spy thriller. And I just had fun with it. And then I just started over about a year and a half, almost two years. I just started writing the the chapters over nights and weekends. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so you you say you wrote like each episode is sort of like a chapter then? Is that how you sort of think of it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's funny because it is written somewhat as a novel, but I wrote it knowing I was going to read it. So it's not like an audio book. Like people think like, oh, is it an audio book? And no, it's not an audio book. No, it's not. It's not. Yeah, it's like this, hopefully this immersive, like dramatic storytelling experience. So I I, I wrote it knowing, okay, this chapter is going to be probably one episode. Well, some of them were long, so I you know split them in two. But it, I wrote them as, uh, for the ear, really, as I was writing it. How did you learn the actual production part? So I just, just playing around. So I um, creatively... Back in college, I was a radio programmer, radio DJ um, at, mm. at Berkeley's radio station. So I, that was actually the highlight, one of the highlights of my college career. So I was always, and this was in the, you know, I was a hip hop DJ, not mixing and scratching, but selecting things to play. Yeah. And my show was like Friday nights. So I was always playing with music production and also narrating, you know, speaking over instrumentals. Right. So I had that. And so all I did was basically use some basic editing software or um, music software and to create the soundscape. Uh, I just, you know, self-taught. I mean, just pretty, you know, DIY, do it yourself. And, um, and with my first podcast, The Rhythm of Wisdom, I was doing those episodes. So I would create the music, mostly, usually I would create the music first, and then I would write while I had the music playing on repeat. On repeat. So the music mm-hmm. is sort of setting the tone, that background music is setting the tone, and then I'm writing it. So it's it's more than just writing, it's kind of like composing in, in a sense, because you're writing to a certain mood that's playing. How about, and maybe this is a silly question because maybe there's just too much variation, but how much time do you say it takes to produce one episode? Oh, man. That's why I don't have, that's why season two isn't out yet. <laughs> it, so it, it ta- so if you go from beginning to end, like the writing, um, so it, I would say it, it takes like a month if I were like, well, so when I was, here's a good example. When I was doing the old podcast, I did it, I wrote episode by episode. When I did Jabari Lincoln Files, I wrote the whole thing, all the chapters at, mm. you know, over, like I said, a year and a half. Yeah. So it that was a long process. And then the next year and a half was, you know, doing more editing and then doing the music and then production, then recording. So essentially that was a three-year project. I, I hope season two doesn't take that long because yeah. this was my first time. But I would I would say, yeah, if I were just writing an episode, yeah, it would probably take me uh, a couple weeks to write, edit, and then record. Yeah, it would probably be like a month-long process for, for, you know, four to six weeks for one episode, I think, depending on how much time I have. Is it really hard to, I mean, have you developed a sort of fan base or followership? Do people often do this with some kind of like network backing almost? But you're on your own completely right yeah, so I did how it. does that I did work a labor of love so unfortunately so this is what I'll say I mean maybe I shouldn't be giving giving up my my give up my stats you know um or, or maybe maybe it's good for me because I remember when I did when I started you know I said you know what if I had like a thousand people that just real loyal listeners I would be happy you know like mm-hmm, a thousand mm-hmm. people who were and oh, yeah. that and that that has been the case I mean um, yeah. in terms of my my listenership each episode over time I mean it's it's been out for several months now I mean I started in January and the season ended in March for season one um so it's had you know 
organically because I didn't do a lot of marketing. So I would look at these yeah. numbers like, oh, wow, 100 people, you know, a couple hundred people every week are, are downloading. So that has been good it, it just just organically and different types of people. Like some people reached out to me on Twitter, just like some random person. And they're like, wow, yeah. you know, I'm a lawyer and yeah, I love this stuff. And I love how do they find ideas. it? How do they find it? Just searching you know, podcasts? I I think that I think at least in my experience, there must have been a very good, um, you know, suggestion feature in I think when it when it came out, it was being suggested like on Apple Podcasts, because um, mm. that's the only thing I can I can think. And I did do a couple of interviews. So hopefully, actually, me, me being here is going to increase yeah. those numbers. Because I when it, Yep. Yeah, because I was on a couple of podcasts, like I was on some spy podcasts uh, and national mm -hmm. security podcasts early on. And then I, I saw some people say, oh, wow, I was I heard you on such and such podcast. I'm so glad that I listened to this. So just just very, very organically. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And I'm always curious because, like I said, I have some of these creative ideas. I'm sure yeah. a lot of our audience does. And you're like, how much effort <laughs> can yeah. I put into something that's a labor of love if it doesn't really, you know, if you put years into this? And then yeah. 20 people listen to it. It's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, so I'm always curious I, as to how well, people you know what? gain an audience. But you know what? I mean, I think also just so if you do, I encourage you to do it, um, to, to, to write something. One thing that may help is is getting feedback. You know, I mean, I guess you would probably do that anyway, but I, I did that. I mean, I wrote and then I had like my network of people. I mean, it was, you know, it was kind of family and friends, but it was like people who were reading the first drafts who gave me, you know, feedback. And then so many different things evolved because I actually, and I did, I reached out to a consultant um, to help look at my story and he gave me mm -hmm. great feedback. This guy named okay. Cameron, Cameron Pasha, I got to give him a, you know, give him a shout out. And, um, and also a woman named Sahara Vora, like they, they actually are, you know, people that do this stuff for a living. So they gave me great feedback and it helped me, I think, improve the story. I changed elements, um, like Jabari's wife. It's so interesting. I mean, it's, it's weird because she, you know, she, you know, it's like, she's not like the main part of the, of the story, but she's a significant part of the story. Mm -hmm. And that was based on feedback, like, you know, to sort of elevate her role from how mm -hmm. she first started. So that that's based on feedback. So I think whatever you do, just, um, yeah, like get that, build a network of people to, to give you feedback. Why the name Jabari Lincoln? I have to think there's a reason why his last name is Lincoln when maybe Jabari too. I mean, yeah. It, he, he has a he has a he's a Muslim guy, so like yeah. you understand why his name's Jabari. But yeah. does Jabari? What does it mean? Like, how much thought did you put into just his name? Very little. Uh, well, very little. And actually, it's not as as grand as people would think. Okay. Although I like the name. The I, it is. I actually I think I'm going to build off of that a little bit in season two, like the origin of his name, like in his universe. But for me, I actually came up with the 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 name like 20 years ago. Um, really. Yeah, I so there, here's this is you're getting like the, the all the reveals because here's something I've Ooh. never I've never revealed. <laughs> so the name Jabari Lincoln. So I mentioned briefly in my my bio, I taught for three years um, in between like grad school and before I joined the CIA. I was actually a math teacher uh, at a DC charter high school in the early 2000s, and. Uh, that experience was the toughest job I ever had. Teaching was just, it was great in so many ways, but it was such a tough job. And when I left, I left teaching, I wrote, this was just, this was just to friends, kind of like how you're saying, I wrote an email story about this fake teacher 
who was teaching and all these funny experiences he had in the classroom, which were all real. And I sent mm-hmm. them to my, my, you know how it is like in teaching, like we all commiserate, like teachers always commiserate about, you know, the, the administration, the students. So I had this net. So I, I sent all these, these, these like chapters to my, to my cowork, former coworkers. And I had to come up with a name for the teacher and it wasn't going to be Yaya Fanusi. It was Jabari Lincoln and Jabari. Honestly, I don't know where I got Jabari from, uh, but Lincoln um, I think at the time I was really into these crime novels, uh, these detective, these mystery thrillers by a guy named, um, uh, oh my goodness, Jeffrey Deaver, Jeffrey Deaver. And he's the guy that wrote, if you ever saw the movie with Denzel years ago, it was called The Bone Collector. It was like a 90s uh, mm-hmm. mystery thriller with Angelina Jolie. And that was, The Bone Collector was a Jeffrey Deaver novel. And the main protagonist, the detective, his name is, he's a quadriplegic, his name is Lincoln Rhyme. And I was really mm. into those books. I liked it. Lincoln Ryan was kind of like, you know, like a, a guy I liked. And I liked the writing, the mystery. And so I think that influenced me cho- choosing Lincoln. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's some, that's some <laughs> but good behind there may the be, scenes. Listen, listen to season two. You may find out more about the origin of his name, like in the, in the actual u- universe of the story. Okay. Yeah. I don't know why, but I'm very interested in that. And I love, <laughs> I love when authors put a lot of thought into the names and that the names have different meanings or it's like, it's named after my grandma who was a, who was a nurse during world war two. And this character's a nurse. So that's why, you know, yeah. I love whether, it, whether it's like literally the meaning of the name means strength or something. And so it was right, a strong yeah. character or if yeah, it's a personal yeah. connection, I don't know. I'm just fa- fascinated by. But you know, the other side of this, names. you have to, the other side, sorry to interrupt, but you do have to be careful. Cause I thought, I kind of thought like that, like, how do I get the names of these people? But you have to be careful because if you name someone, if they're alive, then people are going to be like, oh, what are you saying about me? You know, is that, yeah, yeah. and, and I, I had, because I have to try to distance myself so people don't <laughs> think like, you know, the wife of Jabari Lincoln is my wife. And, you know, this friend is that, like, I don't want people to make those associations because it's it's a story. It's not, right, right, you know, right. in pseudonym necessarily. Right, right. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a question for you before we wrap it up yeah. with the, the quick fire questions. That's mm. kind of just a general thought that I've had listening to your podcast and just given your background, uh, you, you've you've proudly served the country. Like I said, I've also served in the military, but I am kind of afraid of our government. Um, I know that there's a lot of incompetency, so I'm not really a conspiracy theorist person because it takes a lot of coordination to Mm. execute on a lot of these conspiracies that are floating around. And I just know from my experience, like that the government cannot pull that off. But I look at, you know, I look at what happened during COVID. I look at how our Mm. um, cousins in Canada went after people's bank accounts. And then I'm reading, I'm I'm listening to your, your story. And even just the, the, I know it's fictional, but the Mm. Jabari, he's, I don't know if he's framed yet. I don't know like how Mm. this all came about, but I'm assuming there's some kind of framing or just in government incompetency where your life is ruined. Um, some of my colleagues have already been canceled for bad opinions, not by the government, but you know they work for universities or Fortune 500 companies that are intertwined with the government, right? Like mm-hmm. most of these these institutions that are canceling people, they're in the they might be in the private sector, but like Amazon is not totally private. We all know they're deeply intertwined. Boeing is deeply intertwined with the government. There's all these connections. And so, um, am I, am I going a little crazy to be sort of afraid and weary of like this overarching government that could just come in and, and ruin someone's life potentially. And I I think it might Mm -hmm. get worse. Can you comfort me or am I on to something? Well, I mean, I think your, your initial, 
your initial like sort of caveat is is good right where you're saying like you know it would be very hard for for our government to like really be very sophisticated with a conspiracy and just because you know it just doesn't work work that way um uh so 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 i i would agree with that um yeah i would i would i would say that much of the government is just so bureaucratic and that a lot of things that happen um bad things do happen mistakes do happen um i think a lot of it sometimes is just because you've got this bureaucracy that's not very feeling that, that that's not really that just runs on automatic and um and so a lot of you know a lot of what happens is is um yeah just the fact that we have such a huge bureaucracy um I would say I've been out for so long, so I, it's hard for me to comment on like what 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 the government is doing now, right? I'm not mm-hmm. in government. I mean, right, I'm in right. I'm in the DC area, but I'm again, I'm not I'm not a government employee, so I, I don't know what's going on behind, behind you know really behind the scenes. But yeah. I will I, I will say that actually, honestly, over the a lot of what's happened with me over the years is I've been looking at history and I've been looking at where technology is going. Um, one of the things, one of my research areas is what governments are doing with creating digital currency or central mm-hmm. bank digital currency, where we're going in terms of data collection, data analysis, big data, AI. And one observation that I have, it to me, I actually think that we're in a moment similar to where we were at the founding of this country, where if we think about our history, the founders they, they were students of history. They were students of governments. And they saw that the, the, the end result of governments having power tended to be absolutism, tended to be oppression, persecute, persecuting individuals. They saw that because it was, that was, it was just written in history. It was, you know, there, mm-hmm. there was no question. They had observed that. And they created a framework that would limit the government, that would keep it, mm-hmm. that would have the individual, you know, have undeniable rights and or inalienable rights and have, you know, the Fourth Amendment keep, you know, you from unreasonable search and seizure because of what they had seen, that the government automatically just Im- 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 uh, imposes itself. And so we have been fortunate in this country to have a system which has grown and we've sort of taken for granted. Why do I think we're in a similar point now? Because of technology. And mm-hmm. what I'm seeing now, not in government, is that technology is getting, we're interacting with technology so much that data is becoming, you know, um, ubiquitous and data, we're emanating more data in just our, our daily lives. And there are now new mechanisms just to collect data no matter what. I mean, even if you just think the stuff you don't think about, like if your car was stolen or carjacked, you know, God forbid, you're, you know, something like that happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, the police is, you know, they have a lot of tools <laughs> to find, to see where that license plate, you know, has gone. Like they're probably going to find that car in, in a regular, you know, regular city in America because of the amount of surveillance that exists right and those are mm-hmm. like if your car is stolen you're like oh that's great i got my car back you know they they just looked at the records and they saw the license plate blah 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 right that mm-hmm. stuff exists we are moving towards a point where the government is going to be able to have or there are going to be ways to have much more data on individuals and i think the technology is advancing ahead of our understanding of well how do we keep that from getting 
to, for government to have everything. That's what mm-hmm. I'm, that's one of the things that I'm seeing. And in a lot of my work is thinking about this issue and this concern, because I think a lot of people, I mean, I talk to people and, and, you know, you talk to people, some people are like, yeah, but who cares if the government has the, eh, you know, who cares if the government knows it? And I almost think like, what, have you not studied history? I think people just assume like, oh, well, government is always benevolent. Yeah. And again, have you I'm, seen Enemy of the State? Come on. <laughs> you know, and it's funny because the, well, people say, well, conspiracy theories, conspiracy. And the thing is, like, yes, there are conspiracy theories and, and the government is not as – the, the thing is um, – if as long when you start feeding the beast, the beast gets bigger and bigger. The beast wants more and more, and you can get to a point where if people don't push back, you know, you can get to the point where you are in this sort of absolutist sense. Now, now we're not going to have a, a dictator. Hopefully, we're not going to have some, you know, a monarchy. I don't think we're on the road there, but we are. You know, we're getting into a world where we may not have. You may not be able to get into a place where there is not some record of your activity that is available. And that's yeah. a very like, again, it's not conspiracy theory. It's just like, this is kind of the trend. How do I know? Look at the China, the Chinese version, the, the CCP mm-hmm. version of this is they are very clear that they want a digitized world. And for them, there's no idea of like individual rights or that you have individual mm-hmm. privacy. Um, you know, for them, the data belongs to the state, your data belongs to the state, and they're going to build for efficiency, for de- delivering services, for management, for anti-money laundering, for criminal stuff. They're, they're building ways to integrate data and have it all, um, you know, have like a, a, all of the data that they, that the state needs. So I see what's happening in China. And if, because they, if if you don't have any framework to protect yourself from that, the government will be all consuming. So that is mm-hmm. a concern. I'm trying not to be a conspiracy theorist, but you're not <laughs> you're not off there on the concern. And I actually support like that pushback because if we don't have that, yeah, it's, it's not going to end well. So do I need to? Everybody needs to throw out their smartphones. Don't have Alexa in the house. Um, buy gold bars and bury them in the backyard. Like. <laughs> So what do I need to be doing? Yeah, yeah. Save me. Save you, me. You know what? I will I will say I know you're I know you're you're you know you're you're joking, but not joking. I will say, and I know I know we're gonna wrap up, but I will say that, you know, I you know how I think of this? I think like there's no way I could tell people like no one's gonna tell you to, you know, not be online, not use a smartphone. Like it just doesn't work, right? We've just the point of no return. So I don't think there's no legislation. I don't think we can like get people to be more, you know, not virtual or anything like that. But I do think, at least I've sort of personally come to this idea that I think the answer is we have to find out a way, we have to find ways to do things non-digitally in the real, like you have to, I think in your life, do things that keep you connected to the real, connected to the mm-hmm. physical. I mean, again, I know you're, I know you're a religious person. I know you're a Christian, faithful Christian, mm-hmm. biblical worldview, you know, creation, right, comes from God. So mm-hmm. if we are always operating so so when you're interacting with creation you're you're working at least my understanding is you're working with you're interacting with god's signs right his signs are in creation so you're outdoors when you're interacting with people that's god's creation now everything that we create human beings is not god's creation it might be good right we might design a good building we might design a good car we might design this an app these are all things that we're creating so if we're only interacting with the things that we're creating, we're removed from God's creation and God's signs. So if I would say anything, it's like, 
I think there's something there in that we have, we can't go all digital. We can't go all virtual because if we do, we're being cut from the source that our creator has, has, has given to us. So, um, yeah. <laughs> you can put that on a t-shirt. I like that a lot. Thank you for that. And that's, that is a great point yeah. to end and go into our 10 speed round questions. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Uh, are you ready for them? No, but I have no choice. Okay. <laughs> Number one. What is your least favorite color? Uh, orange. That's my favorite color. Oh, wow. Okay. That's it. This episode's over. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, where is there systemic racism in America? Uh, um, in the fact that there's this expectation that Black folks need special help and can't do things by competing with their non-Black peers. What is the tastiest style of cheese? Pepper Jack. The Black Panther or Blade? Uh, I'm going to lose all my nerd cred. I actually never, I don't think I saw Blade. In the 90s, it was hit, hit or miss for me, especially the college years. I missed a lot of movies. So, uh, yeah, so Black Panther, because I haven't seen Blade. Fair enough. Yeah. Is the word Negro a slur? No es una palabra en español. It's a word in Spanish. It's not a slur. Negro is not a slur. I mean, but you got to, you know, use it appropriately, I guess. Yeah. Someone else gave a similar answer to that question. (laughs) What is your favorite movie with a black lead? With a black lead? um, I guess I'll just go with my old school, like back in the day, do the right thing because it was was such a a big uh, influence on me. Yep. Do you think BET still serves a worthwhile purpose? No. Should the election day be made a national holiday? Hmm. I haven't thought much about it, but um, I will say no. What is your favorite cartoon movie? Cartoon movie would be uh, um, tie between Finding Nemo and Monster Inc. Those those are two of my favorite twos. I, I, my daughter just my daughter's three and she just watched Finding Nemo for the oh. first time. And I was like on the edge of my seat, just like yeah. hoping she would have a good yes, reaction yes, to yes. it. Exactly. Yep. Uh, and your final question, what is the, speaking of conspiracy theories, what's yeah. the wildest conspiracy theory you low key believe is true? Hmm. Low key. It's a, that is a, that's a good one. And it's a tough one. Um, so do I believe in any, any, on, um, that <laughs> um that ooh oh gosh oh i know the time is ticking tick tock tick tock tick no it's okay tick-tock. take your time or maybe um, you don't have one maybe you're just not a conspiracy guy yeah i'm not a cons- it's so it's so hard oh i didn't tell you my conspiracy theory st- theory story and we're at the end um about okay, why we got time about, if you got time i got time i i have i think so so i'm gonna say none and i will can and then can i explain why yeah yes my, please okay so here i have a story about conspiracy theories and how i why i don't believe in them because when i was a a, a teenager in my afrocentric black nationalist mindset i did mm-hmm. um so there was, I'm going to name drop here. Like some people who know this name will be like, I can't believe this guy's mentioned this, this guy. So uh, I'm sure kind of, you've never heard of this guy or maybe you have, but so in my high school days and early college days, 
I would sometimes listen to these tapes by this guy named Steve Coakley. So if people that were in like the, the sort of black Afrocentric movement will know this, Steve Coakley was a guy who talked a lot about the Trilateral Commission, the, you know, the, you know, conspiracy, conspiracy theories, blah, blah. He's that, you know, African-American guy. And he was, you know, back in the day, there's like tapes and stuff. So he had this one um, uh, conspiracy theory. He came to the Bay Area. And this is when I was in college. And he came to the Bay Area and he, he had this speech about something called the boule. Have you ever heard of the boule? Mm-mm. So the boule in his theory was the secret organization a fraternity of African-American men. It was, it's kind of like the black skull and bones, according to him. Okay. And so it was basically um, pulling the strings for black society. And it was the reason why black people were, 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 were down because they were like in cahoots with the white man to mm. bring, like to make sure blacks were subservient and while they could get the crumbs, like that was basically yeah. the story. Yeah. And so he gave this speech. I went to this speech and he said he found the list of the Boule members that were in the Bay Area. So he mm. reads through the, the names, and these are real people. One person next to him is like, oh, my goodness, I know that person. I can't believe he's a member of the Boule. Oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. Okay. Time goes by, maybe even a year. So I remember that someone at UC Berkeley who was a high administrator, African-American, was named as a member mm-hmm. of the Boule. And so okay. um, to, to end the story, basically – a year time goes by and I'm in this, this student organization and we're trying to raise money. We're doing a fundraiser to do this trip to, 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 to the city. And someone says, Oh, we should go talk to this administrator because he's African-American. He's going to help, you know, help us raise the funds, blah, blah, blah. So it's this guy who I know was named as a member of the boule. So here I am, this young college student. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh, I'm, I'm going behind enemy lines. This guy's like, Ooh, this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so we go and we, you know, our student organization, we're talking about, you know, this conference we're going to blah, blah, blah. And so, and so then he immediately, you know, he tells us, oh, like, oh, this is great. Looking at your proposal. Yeah, I'm going to do what I can. Um, and, you know, actually, I'm a part of this graduate fraternity called blah, blah, blah. I forget the name of it. It, it is an actual thing. It's an actual fraternity of graduate African-American men. I think the, the slang name is Boulay. And he's like, yeah, you know, um, you know, um, I'll take it to them. And yeah, maybe we could we'll, we'll definitely provide some money, blah, blah. So nonchalant. And I was like, what? wait a second. I thought it was a secret organization. Like, how did he, you know, this is my, my just naivete, you know. And so mm-hmm. that was the first lesson. And then later I heard Steve Coakley talk about like his things are conspiracy theories. Like they're just theories. You know, I heard like years later on the radio. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was the experience of like being thinking about a conspiracy theory, actually getting close to it and then just realizing it was just bunk. Yeah. Yeah. So that, no, never again. Fool me <laughs> never once. Again. Yeah, fool shame me once. on me. Exactly. Shame on you. Shame on me twice. <laughs> what, what did Bush say? I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, Sorry for that long-winded. Yeah. But that's why. No, that's great. No, that's great. It's wonderful. Do you, do you have any, that was kind of a final thought, but do you have anything else that you want to plug, thought you want to finish? Anything else you want to get off your chest? Jabari Lincoln stuff. When is that next season dropping oh, or when maybe an estimate of what it's coming out? Wow. Uh, anything else you want to leave us with? I will just leave the listeners who are listening to this and are like, why should I listen to this? What is this podcast he's talking about? Just give me a chance. Just check out either. There's, there's even a teaser. There's, you know, mm-hmm. just check out episode one. See if it grabs you. If it doesn't grab you, it, it doesn't. But please go find the Jabari Lincoln Files wherever you get your podcast. Give it a listen. And um, and that that would make me so happy. Do you have a, like a, we'll, we'll link to, I know there's a website for Jabari Lincoln, right? And then can yeah. people 
you have a subscriber oh, list or something too, right? So yeah, I probably need to be better at managing Email that. list. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there is a way you could, there's like a subscribe where I can reach out. So go if you go to jabarilincoln.com, um, uh, you can find it, you can find it there and you could put in your email and then be informed when we're getting ready for season two. Okay, awesome. Well, Yaya, thanks for coming on. Thank you yeah. for being a friend of free black thought, free African-American <laughs> oh, thought. <laughs> F-A-A-T doesn't sound, it's, it's not as cool. So no, yeah, it doesn't roll it. off the tongue as good. F-B-T, free black thought, it's all good. Yes, thank Although you for coming my, on. My thank question you. for you is free a verb or like an adjective? Adjective? It's, well, we, we like the name because it's both. So it's, it's, we leave it up to interpretation. I think everyone <laughs> thinks of it as a verb or an adjective first, like for everybody, it's different how they, how they yeah, read yeah. it. Right, right. Um, right, 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 right. Okay. For, okay. For me, I read it as a, as an adjective first. Yeah. Right. Um, that's how I read it, but other okay. people read it and, and we like to leave it a little bit nuanced there. So that's mm-hmm. a great question. Um, we'll keep in touch. I know that You'll probably come on the podcast hopefully again, maybe after season two, or maybe after you write some more cool, you know, pieces for 1776 Unites or other places. We love having you as a, as as we would consider, I think, a colleague here. So thank you so much, Yaya, and I'll see you around. Thank you, Connie. Take care. The number you have dialed. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Free Black Thought.